You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. How many of you had a chance to go down to Red, White, and Boom on Friday night? This is, how about a show of hands? How many get, had a chance to go to Red, White, and Boom? All right, not, a, not too many of you. I, um, we really do enjoy this weekend. It is a great opportunity to celebrate the birth of our country, the birth of our nation, uh, out in the country. And so we have red, white, and boom basically all weekend long, beginning <laughs> on Friday night. And I'm still finding a way, if I could either put my head on a swivel or get on a swivel chair, we could literally see fireworks 360 uh, as our neighbors compete for bigger and greater shows. It is, however, I have noticed, some of you have perhaps noticed this as well, is this is a bad weekend for dogs. Can anybody relate to that? This is our dog's worst weekend of the year. He was sitting on my lap last night, just shaking, shaking. Yeah, it's a little sad. It's like a horror show. Literally every time this, every year at this time, he believes the apocalypse has begun. And we need a bomb shelter. And going outside to use the bathroom is equivalent to suicide. Who could use the bathroom during a time like this? And so that creates its own uh, regrettable things on our side. <laughs> Bar none, it's the worst weekend of the year for, for our dog. I'd like to start this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis, chapter 8 from Mere Christianity. Lewis wrote this. I now come to that part of the Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself, accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of, Lewis writes, is pride, our self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Now, this next edition of Gideon's life is about pride. Two weeks ago, we were introduced to his fears and his insecurities. He belonged to an insignificant family of an insignificant tribe. He does not possess the natural talents of a warrior. But from that humble beginning, we saw last week how God raised Gideon up to do impossible things, to lead Israel into a military victory of unbelievable proportions. And in that, Gideon tasted wild, wild success. God did the improbable through him. 
You know, often our hearts are tested by difficulty. But it is equally true that our hearts are tested by success. I know some of you are saying, I'd like to be tested that way once in a while. But be careful what you ask for. I have noticed in my life that indeed the greatest temptations to disconnect from God do not come in trying circumstances, but rather when success is experienced. For me, particularly when I am facing some very, very challenging circumstance, one in which I have prayed over and needed God in, and then there's some breakthrough. God empowers me, and I have that difficult leadership conversation, or I'm able to answer the questions of a, of a seeker, or I put together that difficult message in a way that really works, in a way that you affirm. And when that happens, if I pay attention to my heart, I am just stunned, <laughs> flabbergasted at how quickly I can not thank God and how quickly I can forget God. How quickly I can turn it into the Chris Martin Appreciation Hour. <laughs> and these subtle thoughts trickle in like, hey, you were really good there. I mean, that was impressive. People are going to ask you about that. Your peers are going to ask you about that. They're going to, they're going to ask you for guidance in that. I've also noticed that the more sacrifice required in something I do for God, the more apt I am to believe that I deserve admiration or that I deserve honor. Maybe you can't relate to this. That's okay. You know, we all have different temptations. We really do. And this is one for me. Tim Keller wrote this about the danger of success. I thought this was well put. He said, imagine a man who works extremely hard at his job because he needs to prove himself through financial success. What is the worst thing that can happen to him? Well, the obvious answer is career failure. Of course, someone who is basing their happiness and their identity on their work will be devastated by career failure. But at least through the failure he may stop idolizing career advancement. He may realize that status and money could never fulfill him. No, the worst thing that can happen to him is what? The worst thing that can happen to him is career success. Success will only confirm his belief that he can fulfill himself and control his own life. He will be more a slave to success and money than if he failed. He will feel proud and superior to others. He will expect deference and bowing and scraping from others. This morning, we're going to do basically three things. Close quote, by the way, from Tim Keller. We're going to do three things. One, we are going to, we're going to see how success affects Gideon in Judges chapter 8. Two, we're going to reflect on how success can impact us. And then three, what do we do then in the light of that to stay connected to God? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for our few moments to be together this morning.
And we pray that, Father, you would redeem this time so that every one of your purposes will be accomplished and fulfilled and completed. May I have a sensitive listening heart to you and a worshiping heart throughout this time, Father, and may my friends as well be uh, ready to learn and have a responsive heart to whatever you want to say this morning. Thank you for, God, your word. We thank you for it. Speak to us this morning. We are here to serve you. We are here to worship you. Through Christ and for his glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can turn. And I'm actually not going to have many verses here on the slide behind you, so it may help you to look at this text. If you're using uh, your pew Bible, I think it is page 207. That's right, 207. We're going to read this entire chapter, but read it in sections. And as we read it, I'd like you to keep these three parallel storylines in the forefront of your thinking. Here's number one. So I want you to notice how absent God is from this passage. His name will be invoked and used, but notice how silent God is and how little or really none uh, on Gideon's part of seeking God. This is so different than the previous chapter, chapter 7. Secondly, notice we're going to see how Gideon asserts himself way, way past his God-given calling. And then thirdly, I want you to take note of the the fuel, the fire, the motivation of personal vengeance, okay? These three storylines really run on a parallel track throughout this eighth chapter. Keep these things in mind. Look at verse 1, chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hand the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided. He said this. In this first cameo after Gideon's great battle, we commend him for his diplomatic skills. He's able to resolve this potential conflict with a very powerful tribe of Ephraim who's a little upset that they were left out of this glorious victory. They're basically saying, you know, we wanted a piece of this pie. We wanted a piece of this glory. Now, Ephraim was a very significant tribe, and odds are they would not have responded to Gideon's call given his uh, place in the pecking order with respect to the tribes of Israel. So it's a little bit two-handed here. But Gideon, aware of their power, still is skillful in diffusing this issue with this powerful tribe of Ephraim. So things begin to look very well in Gideon's post-military career. Look at verse 4. Then Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, 
And the officials of Sukkoth said, well, well, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna, Zalmunna already in your hand? Skip the page ahead. That we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Hmm. This is not quite as rosy here as the men of Ephraim. Not quite the same diplomacy and negotiating skill that Gideon is using. What's happening here? We can tell a little bit from Gideon's language, and this will, this will unfold here more clearly, but he expects something from them, and he is insulted when he does not get it. Gideon expects these men to honor his achievement and to give him adoration for what he's accomplished. And when he does not get it, when he receives this personal slight, he promises a violent response. Now, we need to just crawl inside the skin of these individuals for a moment. Can you venture to guess why they were not so eager to help Gideon? It wasn't simply a personal vendetta against him. We're not quite sure all that went on. But what happens if they do aid Gideon and Gideon is not successful in his pursuit? What happens today when you aid the enemy... And the enemy comes back to your doorstep. Yeah, retribution. These leaders of this town wanted to be Switzerland. They wanted to maintain a line of neutrality. And yet they are Israelites. They're fellow brothers. So it is a thorny situation. But what happens here is it it does make Gideon's previous diplomatic skill look somewhat shallow. We see that his motivation for not hitting Ephraim harder, is that he didn't have the power to do so. We begin to get the picture that Gideon has forgot, that it was God who won the battle. He was forgetting the lesson of the 300. Look at verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. You go on here. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris. And he captured a young man. He comes back the same way. He captures the young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And this young man wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. 
And as we see the rage boiling, look at verse 17. And he broke down the power of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, our best evidence says these are Israelites that he has turned on. Let's see that image, Scott, if we could. This is, this is a pretty nasty punishment. These are briars, what some versions call a bramble. This is what he punished the leaders of Sukkoth with. Now, on one level, we might say, hey, listen, these tribes were disloyal in the time of war. They deserved this. But again, I just want you to hold on to that thought for a moment as we roll through this passage. Because what we're seeing here is foreshadowing something. It is foreshadowing more civil war and more discord and more social disintegration that is happening in this nation of Israel. And Gideon's response here helps play into that civil discord and civil decay. Look at verse 18. This is really a dark moment. Remember I told you, we're going to have some passages. I told you, in the very, I warned you, in the very beginning, this was not a P, rated G book, RPG. There were going to be moments when we're going to wince. We are going to wince at the leaders of God. Look at verse 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers. Hmm. They were my brothers. These men had killed Gideon's brothers. They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Imagine this. Rise and kill them. Dads, can you imagine telling your 10 or 12 or 14 year old to do this? But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zamunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. This is a dark moment. We recognize here there's more at the table in Gideon's motivation than the glory of the Lord. Personal vengeance has been flowering in his life. This is a, such a predictable Hollywood storyline that we see played over and over again. And what Gideon wants to do is not only bring some kind of judgment upon his enemies. What does he want to do by asking his son to kill them? He wants to absolutely humiliate them. You see the rage building in his heart. We'll see how this unfolds. And notice, this is very interesting. Do you notice how he's ready to show mercy to these two guys? He said, if you had not done this, I would leave you alive. In reality, Gideon was more gracious and merciful to the enemies of God than he was his fellow Israelites. You know, we can do that too, can't we? We can do that too. I've done that. We can be far more harsh and judgmental with our brothers and sisters in Christ 
than with those outside the church. It's true. I mean, it is true. It's true that we, it's true that we, we should not expect non-Christians. We should not expect uh, people that have not yet come to a faith in Christ. There are certain, we shouldn't expect them to have certain Christian behaviors and convictions. They're not Christians yet. But isn't it also true that within the house of God that our brothers and sisters here and other places still struggle with sin and still struggle with dysfunctions? We forget sometimes, don't we, the background. We forget sometimes the background from which some of us have come. And we are so quick to judge. I think one of the lessons of this story is be quick to show mercy, not just to a non-Christian who has no sense of what God's love is, but what about to your brother and sister, given the background that they've come from? You know, when we are fueled by personal vengeance, it can be ugly for us as well, can it? Can it? When we find that we're motivated by personal vengeance. Yeah, you may not pick up a sword and kill someone, but boy, I tell you, slander with your words, killing someone's reputation can do, uh, it can do almost as much damage. When we slander someone, when we attack someone's reputation because of vengeance. Or we may find that we delight or take a perverted joy in uh, our enemy's failure or the person that we're holding something against. This is the working of the human heart, not dependent on God, but dependent on self. We too forget the lesson of the 300. We too forget the improbable, miraculous salvation of our own souls and lives. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, this is very interesting, rule over us and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, and the Lord will rule over you. Now, this is an interesting moment. It's actually the last time Gideon's going to talk actively about God. The people want to make Gideon king. They want a military warrior king in the same mold of their Near Eastern Canaanite neighbors. And in Gideon's response, we see the right theology. Gideon sensed here that the people's grid, their criteria was They too forget that the victory was the Lord's. They're focused on Him, forgetting that it was God who did this. They're looking to a human being to give them only what God can give. FYI, that's a good thought for you to think about as we enter the 2016 elections. They were short-sighted in their hope for a king, and Gideon turns them down. And almost immediately, Gideon begins to contradict what he said. And he begins to play the part of a king. Look at the next scripture here. And Gideon said to them, verse 24, Gideon said to them, Okay, I'm not going to be your king, but let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from this spoil. Now the first thing we should think of here, do you remember 
when this whole thing, this whole conquest started, what was one of the specific commands that God gave that would make this conquest different than any other military conquest? Don't take the spoil. Okay, that's forgotten. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's 43 pounds. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants of the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. These were symbols of royalty. And besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it. We'll explain this in a moment. And put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel hoard, not a word we use today, but you could replace the word prostituted. It's spiritual adultery. All Israel hoard after it there. In other words, they made this ephod into a superstitious relic. They worshipped it rather than God. And it's very much like the golden calf that their forefathers had made and worshipped at Mount Sinai. And it became a snare, meaning that it led Gideon and his family into pagan idol worship. Now, this is very interesting. Though he refuses to be their king, he asks for a financial reward and becomes very rich in the process. And in every way, ever since his pursuit of Zeba and Zalmunna, he has acted in the fashion of the Near Eastern Oriental kings. Daniel Block comments on these five things, that this is how kings acted in this age. One, he treats his fellow countrymen ruthlessly. Two, his actions are driven not by a theological principle, but by personal agenda. Three, we already saw earlier in the chapter, he referred to the death of his brothers as what? A royal assassination. Four, he made ridiculous demands of his people. For example, his own son. And five, he claimed for himself the symbols of royalty that were taken from the enemy. Now, what is the significance of this ephod? Let me show you an image here of an ephod. You can see it up here. Let me explain what this is. The ephod was worn only by the high priest in the cultic worship of Israel. This was worn in the tabernacle. This is the place where God meets with his people. And on the front, you can see where the Urim and Thummim, these were two stones that helped the people of God discern his will during a time of crisis. That's the, what is there in that, in that, uh, that, uh, that emblems there in front of him that is a part of this, this, this uh, garment. The ephod represents the place where God dwells, the presence of God. Now, the tabernacle, during this time, the place where the cultic worship took place in Israel was in a city called Shiloh. That's where the people met with God. In making an ephod, Gideon is setting up a rival place of worship. Tim Keller notes that Gideon wants to encourage people to come to him for guidance, to see his hometown as a place where God can be found, 
causing people to look to him and not to God. Gideon has used God. Doesn't this sound familiar? Gideon has used God in order to consolidate his own political position. And the impact here is profound. We see it in the ensuing chapters. Gideon does not lead people to God, which is the role of a a judge and a spiritual leader, but he actually leads people away from God. Now, it's interesting. The author of Judges has refused commentary. He's made no moral commentary, even about those violent acts. But on this one, the author strongly condemns the actions of Gideon. Now, verse 28 describes the peace the land experienced, but we've already seen how that peace has been compromised. And in his retirement, Gideon continues to act the part of a king. Look at verse 30. Here's what kings did. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. Again, that's probably not a literal number, but it's a number that would point to the role and the position of kings. He had many wives. Again, this sounds like King David. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now, if you have any doubts at this point that Gideon, though he refused to be the king, is playing the part of king, the name Abimelech means, my father is the king. So, with his son through the concubine, and it's going to lead to disastrous results in chapter 9, he, um, he plays his card. Gideon knew in his mind. And we have to ask ourselves, I mean, how could this possibly be? How could he look so... How could he make the theologically noble decision and yet consistently play this part? It's because though he knew the right answers theologically, he could not resist the pull of using his victory to consolidate power, to consolidate position and status and wealth. Friends, don't be too quick to judge him there. (laughs) Don't be too quick to say, how could he do that? It's cause for us to look inside as well. Though we might know the right answers theologically, how consistent does our life match with what we say we know and we believe? I go back to those three themes. Absence of God, personal vengeance, and going beyond the God assignment. And what did it do? It left Gideon with a very mixed legacy of leadership. This is our final week on Gideon. And so we can say on one side, Gideon had a great moment of faith, a great victory. My goodness, he is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. And there was peace for 40 years. At the same time, he left the nation more divided and more disconnected from God. And though Gideon did feel some restraint, and that restraint tempered his pursuit of power to a degree. When we look at chapter 9, we won't do that today, and study the life of Abimelech, his son felt no restraint at all. Abimelech would blow off any limitations. He would tear off the facade and he would demand a fully recognized kingship. And he would seek power with a lust that was ferocious. 
And chapter 9 leaves the nation more divided and in more shambles. And so, in this mixed legacy, and in this particular chapter, let's take a pivot now, and let's ask ourselves the question, so what are really the lessons for me? What are the lessons for us today? And I want to build here to give you three very practical things to do from this story. We have to realize again that success has its own form of testing. When we have success, can we remain grounded? Can we remain humble? How do we test ourselves in that way? You might ask yourself, well, am I quickly and easily offended? Do I begin to demand that people think of me in a certain way? Or people see me in a certain way? Do I find myself demanding respect or a certain form of treatment from others? Here's another way of asking about a barometer of our hearts on success. Can I enjoy my own success? Can you enjoy your success without being enslaved to it? And here's another question. Can I enjoy the success of others without comparing myself or beating myself up for not having accomplished something similar? When I hear the success of others, do I enjoy their success or do I make a personal hidden covenant to myself that I can match or outdo their achievements? What goes on in your own heart? You see, this is how the Christian life can become a pathway of law and not grace for us. For we place expectations on ourselves that do not come from God. They're fueled by pride. They're fueled by this fire to compete. And jealousies and insecurities bubble up from within. One of the pathways of grace that God has given me in my temptations is that I have learned to pay attention to these secret motivations. I have learned to pay attention to these secret deals I make with myself when wanting the gifts or successes or honor of another person. And when I get it squared up and when I can just enjoy the success of others from a place of security, I'm telling you, that's freedom. And that is freedom to walk in His grace and just settle into the assignment that He has for me and be very content in that. And then I can see the the success. It might be spiritual, financial, family, whatever realm it is. I can see the success of others, even if I failed in that area or perceived that I failed. And I can rejoice with their success. I can enjoy their success being secure in what God is doing in me. So, here's how to make this practical, really concrete. Number one, number one, when I'm experiencing success, here's the first thing, pay attention to your own heart. Pay attention to your own heart. Trace your thoughts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. When you experience success, pay attention to your heart and be careful to give glory to God. Be careful to thank God and remember God and praise Him for what He's done. 
Give Him the glory when God gives you success in your life. Pay attention to your heart. Secondly, and this is what's so hard for us, what Lewis commented on earlier, and that is to admit your pride to God and others. Admit your pride. Proverbs 28.13 says, We will find mercy. It says, If we conceal our sin, we won't make progress. But if we share what is in our hearts, we will find mercy from God. Admit your pride. How hard it is to admit it, isn't it? But how freeing it is. You know, whenever we come together and gather here to worship on a Sunday morning, when you sit down to worship God and begin singing, the first thing that should go on in our minds is this. Because what worship is, how worship begins, is we recognize that God is the sun and we are the planets. See, the way we typically live our lives is the other way around, right? We're the sun and God revolves around me to meet my needs. Others revolve around me to meet my needs. But when we worship, we, re- we, we get that order, we restore the right order. And we say, God is at the center. God is His Son. I revolve around Him. We confess our pride. We confess our self-sufficiency to Him and to one another. And then we find we are free to begin to truly engage and connect with God in meaningful, heartfelt worship. But we first have to abandon the throne. We first have to abandon the center and make God the center of our reality. Here's the third thing, and I'm going to explain this, and that is be willing to laugh at yourself. Be willing to laugh at yourself. I hadn't discovered this until recently, but I had found that my own experience corroborates what C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago. And if I could, let me take you to a book, one of C.S. Lewis' most famous books, called The Screwtape Letters. And in the screw tape letters, what Lewis does is he helps us understand how Satan works his temptation in our lives. And so he sets up a world where the devil speaks from his command center to Wormwood, his agent, a demon. And Wormwood has been assigned to tempt a specific Christian that is called the patient. And this particular scene deals with pride. Let me read this to you. This is the devil to his agent Wormwood. Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient, is that he is making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather. Not even an expectation of an endowment of grace for life. But only a hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. In other words, the Christian is just depending on God Every moment. No more lavish promises is he making. And then Satan says to Wormwood, this is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn attention to that fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit, and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. 
If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this form of new pride, make him proud of his attempt. And so on, through as many stages as you please. But here is where Lewis is so insightful. But don't try this for too long. For fear that you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh and go to bed. What does he mean by this? You know what he's getting at? What Lewis is getting at is he's referring to the impossibility of changing ourselves. What he's saying to you and me is give up that image you are trying to project of being a perfectly humble person because you're not. And when we can come to that honesty, it is so freeing. You see, my consciousness of how perpetual my pride is, how my heart is an idle factory, the consciousness of that is another excuse to delight again in God's grace and His mercy. And His mercy. It's a great gift. You see, what God allows us to do when we know that God knows us intimately, He knows our little games, He knows our little machinations, He knows how we foist this image of being a humble person when in reality we're pride, and He knows we do it perpetually. But He still loves us. He still accepts us. He still blesses us. You see, what that allows us to do is to stop taking ourselves so seriously. To stop taking our humanity so seriously. And you see, God's acceptance of us allows you and me to accept one another. And we can begin to laugh at ourselves. Just think, oh God, who could save me? Who could ever save me? Who could ever love me? My heart is so given to this. But you know me. You love me. You accept me. And the patient sees this, laughs at the proportion of God's grace and says, I'm going to bed. Tomorrow will be another day. And Satan has lost his efforts. You see, in this big picture of the judges, we have Gideon's failures, we have Gideon's inconsistencies, and his mixed legacy. You know, the entire sweep of the Old Testament prepares us for the true and the rightful king. And as we move here towards taking communion this morning and celebrating the bread and celebrating the juice, the wine, let's just do a very quick comparison in just a moment from Gideon to the perfect King Jesus. How did Gideon meet betrayal? He met it with vengeance. How did Jesus meet betrayal? When Judas kissed his Savior and gave him to the authorities, Jesus met betrayal with forgiveness. Gideon rejected kingship but continued to play the part. Jesus rejected kingship at every possible turn. Thirdly, Gideon sought to humiliate his enemies. Jesus bore the humiliation of his enemies for the sake of love. Jesus was innocent, but beaten and misunderstood. He was made vulnerable to the powerful nation of the world, 
And though sinless, he was rejected by the most religious people of the world. He did it willingly. He did it with the anticipation of a future joy. So he could bear the sins of the world on his own person. He is the perfect, the right, the just king that we were longing for all the time. Gideon and the others fail us, but Jesus Christ did not. He is, he was, and he is, and he always will be the perfect, righteous, and just king. It is him we celebrate, the one that paid our sin debt. It is him we celebrate this morning in the bread and in the juice. What I'd like you to do this morning, and you can begin, ushers, you can begin to release folks. Like the elements, the bread and the juice, uh, pick them up and then return to your seat and hold on to them. We'll take them together. And this morning, if um, you're uncertain of your status before God, if you're uncertain, if you are yet a Jesus follower, we invite you to come forward and you can see sort of what takes place here. But um, don't yet take the elements because by taking them, by taking the bread, by taking the juice, we are saying that Christ has come into us, that his life has been imparted to us. And when we take the bread and juice, that's what we are proclaiming.